Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, quick reminder again before we begin that we are in need of your support like never before. We are committed to uh, seeing this through and our spirits are high. It feels like our desire to sustain and survive this are just completely aligned with our desire to give you our best work and to be as useful as we possibly can be throughout this. Uh, but there are business pressures and what's happening is the, the carnage is just, uh, it's not like anything we've seen before. You know this. If you are not in a position to help, uh, then that is certainly understood. But if you are in a position where we are a positive part of your life during this ordeal and you can spare $5 Canadian a month to get ad-free versions of Canada Land podcasts and uh, to help us make everything that we make here, uh, please do so. Please go to the show notes and click on the link or go to canadalandshow.com slash join. And it's never been easier. In just a few moments, you will be listening to ad-free versions of this podcast. Thank you. If you're looking for silver linings, how's this? Coronavirus might have killed off the alt-right. You'd think that we'd be awash in conspiracy theories right now, in misinformation campaigns, in partisan spin, in race baiting, and, and the usual blame games. Instead, we are sharing sourdough starter tips, and whether you should use vacuum bags or coffee filters when making homemade masks. Maybe that sounds naive? But seriously, it does seem like COVID-19 has pushed the trolls and the rage hustlers out of the conversation. I know the Ezra Levants and the Alex Joneses and, and their respective armies are still out there trying to push garbage into our feeds, but their access seems to have been revoked. They were already somewhat on the ropes, I realized, deplatformed and demonetized to various degrees, but they were still able to quickly assert themselves into our minds and into our emotions and into our discourse until like a month ago. I think it could just be the brutal reality of nature. A virus takes no sides in the culture wars. It just is. I mean, at first, Donald Trump took on COVID-19 the way that he has taken on everything else, as something to ignore and then decry as a plot against him, then blame other people for, then promise to heroically and suddenly triumph over. I mean, yeah, he tried to spin it, and then he spun out. It just is. So am I dreaming to imagine that this crisis might smack the public consciousness back to reality? Today, I'm going to talk to somebody about that. Andrew Morantz is a staff writer for The New Yorker and the author of the book Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. He spoke to me from his apartment in New York. Wait for it. 
This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Alejandro Gamora, Lauren Vastano, Brittany Wouts, David Glennie, Agata Kaliska, Colin Reed, Brad McKierney, and Greg James. Hi, this is Greg James from the 905 suburbs of Toronto. Like many people, I discovered Canada Land by listening to Thunder Bay, but then went on to find the other shows on offer. In addition to Canada Land, hosted by the lovably obnoxious Jesse Brown and his seemingly limitless Rolodex of top-quality guests, I never miss Jen Gerson's view from Alberta on Oppo or the fantastic investigative work of Archie Mann on Commons. I'm happy to send them some money every month to help keep the lights on because the work they're doing is brave, entertaining, and urgently needed. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated, and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Andrew, if there's any silver lining to this, uh, you know, horrific situation that we're in, perhaps it is that I have not heard the name Alex Jones or Milo, or all of these deplorables who we used to talk about and actually investigate and, and analyze what was happening. You know, we, we dedicated quite a bit of resources on this show to tracking that stuff. And it's, it's been noticeably and, and, you know, gratefully absent from our conversation for some time. What happened to the deplorables? First, I'll say I have a talk of the town piece about how Alex Jones is responding to the coronavirus, which uh, it probably won't shock you to learn is, it, is that he's selling a bunch of snake oil to try to profit from it by selling fake cures to it. But I mean, the larger point, I think, is totally accurate, which is a lot of the people that you mentioned have kind of recessed from public view. And obviously, that is a hopeful sign, right? I mean, you don't want to live in a world where those people are taking over Fox News time slots or, you know, being elected to public office or anything like that. But just because the individuals who we know of by name and who I write about might be sort of less visible on our daily perusals of social media, that doesn't mean that the systems that gave rise to them have been ameliorated. Has there not been systemic change? I mean, uh, a lot of these people, I think Gavin McInnes, Mylenopoulos, Alex Jones, they're all off Twitter. They're deplatformed elsewhere. Their payment uh, platforms, a lot of them have kicked them off. Uh, has deplatforming, I mean, that, that's systemic change. Uh, has it worked? And is it? I guess I would, I would not define systemic change as kicking off individuals. I consider that individual change. If you whack a mole and then whack another mole and then whack another mole, that's not systemic change. That's you hitting one person with one hammer. 
Well, that's actually an interesting thing you're saying because what your book is about is is the gate crashers, uh, the deplor- the deplorables uh, who who crash the right. gates of our, our discourse, and the gatekeepers, the Silicon Valley tech wizards um, who who created these systems th- that they were able to exploit. And you're kind of saying something that's consistent with what the gatekeepers used to say, which was they 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 sort of hated anything that required human editorial judgment or uh, any kind of like. Um, I don't know, humanistic, uh, critical thinking skills. They wanted machines to make rules and, and to enforce them so that it was a systemic change that they could, they would not be held responsible for. Is there any way, but to go on an ad hoc case by case basis to enforce societal norms? Like, isn't that the, how we've always kind of managed our Overton windows? But it's not enough. I think one thing that I might think of as, as a more sweeping systemic change would be to actually change the incentives of the platforms so that they're not breaking people's brains, right? If you have a business that is based on, you know, getting people addicted to slot machines and you build an entire building so that the oxygen is pumped up in the airflow so that their endorphins flow more freely and you give them free drinks and you, you know, don't have any natural light so that nobody knows what time it is, you know, and you make all these design choices to make people want to gamble as much as possible. And then you decide a couple of the people at the slot machines are now problem gamblers and you're going to, you know, kick them out of your casino. You didn't change the design of the casino. You just picked a couple of people and kicked them out. What I'm advocating for is actually changing the way these systems are built. So, you know, changing what is incentivized on Facebook or Twitter, changing what makes posts go viral, changing the actual what Jack Dorsey keeps calling the conversational health of the platforms themselves rather than just sort of cherry-picking examples. Now, it's a little ironic because my entire book is kind of, in a sense, cherry-picking examples, but the way that I'm trying to do it is to do it in a kind of narrative, integrated way that uses these people's sort of narrative case studies to show where the flaws in the system are so that the system itself can be completely transformed. I think we have to actually rebuild these platforms from the bottom up if we don't want to keep having bad outcomes. It's interesting to have this conversation with you right now because I have noticed, and tell me if you have as well, a, a marked decrease since coronavirus hit of bullshit and uh, clickbait and hate, 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 hate bait. And it seems to be revealing to me that, they, that, that, that perhaps they always had the power. Like it seems like now, and the news media as well, it's like, let's just build towards the most maximize credible information and public good. Not to say that there's some horseshit getting in, 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 into the mix, but it does feel like it's a, it's suddenly a very different internet out there. People are figuring this stuff out in real time. And by people, I mean, professional news gatherers and disseminators and also just normal people. So lots of mistakes are being made. I mean, people are saying face masks don't work. Actually, they do work. Actually, this thing is airborne. Actually, it lives on surfaces. Actually, you know, that that's just the sort of the way this stuff works in good faith when you just don't know how things work until you sort of figure them out in real time. To the extent that it is true that we've seen a decrease in bullshit I think, again, that's an incentive problem. Right now, because people's lives are actually acutely in danger, they suddenly want more reliable information because their life literally depends on it. I would argue that your life always depends on getting good, reliable information in the long term. It's just very, very obvious and visible right now, and the timescales are much shorter. These platforms could always 
deliver better information to us. And when this recedes, they can do so as well. But the incentives have to be there. And right now, the incentives, I think, are lined up slightly better. You can get a lot of traffic just by printing basic facts and basic information. And that just wasn't always the case. You couldn't always get a monster viral hit on a Washington Post piece by saying, here's what's in the bill that the Senate is currently considering. Now you can, right? Because there's just so much confusion and chaos that people are just desperate for information. Um, I don't think that that means that we just have to live in a constant state of crisis in order to have a functional media system. I think it means that maybe we have to make decisions that are not based on short-term entertainment and profits and, and clickbait all the time. Not, not to kind of unduly congratulate ourselves, uh, but, but it does seem that, you know, in this moment, uh, everybody is just absolutely glued to the news and hitting refresh, refresh, refresh. There's a lot more attention than there is information. And that is a very ripe uh, atmosphere for like really bad misinformation to, to, to blow up. So far, uh, you know, it's kind of promising. It's kind of like proving that, that this, it, it is possible to have a, a better information ecosystem than we've had in the past. I think largely that might be true. I do think it's kind of too early to tell, but also, you know, it's very easy to kind of form an opinion about the worst case scenario. You know, it's very easy. And I, I was very wary about this when I set out to do this book. It's very easy to form an opinion about a Nazi. Nazis are bad. It's very easy to form an opinion about, you know, a, a, a just outright complete fake news disinformation agent, you know, disinformation is bad. That um, I want to, to stay toward the cases that start to get a little bit grayer and a little bit more um, muddled and more interesting. The gray area stuff is not going away even in this moment. So I, I just want to caution us against, you know, declaring victory too early. It is, yes, if you're someone who is claiming that you can sell an amulet that, you know, destroys the coronavirus, that's a pretty easy call for a platform to kick you off. But if you're you know, a contrarian who loves courting controversy by saying, actually, I don't think social distancing really works. And I'm not sure that we have the data to support that. You know, I'm not sure that that person can or should or would be kicked off. I'm not advocating for that person to be deplatformed. What I'm saying is that person is now actively incentivized by the systems we currently have to court controversy and inspire outrage. And that's that problem still remains. I agree. I'm just a big fan of, of shaming. Yeah, I think we can do it sometimes. And I actually, one of the, each of the chapters has a little epigraph in my book. And one of them is a quote from Zadie Smith saying, you know, shame gets a really bad rep these days, but I think shame is a really useful emotion. You know, one of the kind of goals with the book was that I didn't want to sort of lay out a polemic or a screed, or even really a point-by-point -point argument. I think a lot of times people encounter nonfiction books and they say, okay, well, what's your argument, you know? And can you give me like the 15-minute TED Talk version of your argument? Or, you know, do I really have to like read it chapter by chapter? And my thing is, I don't think arguments get us that far with this stuff. I think it's actually much more useful to do a kind of textured um, sort of storytelling approach. And so, you know, by hanging out and embedding with these people for, you know, three or four years. And by these people, I mean, as, as you say, the gate crashers and also the, the new gatekeepers of Silicon Valley, what I ended up with was much less a polemic, you know, antisocial, why I hate social media, but much more like how and why and in what specific ways and for what specific motivations do people kind of tinker with and mess with these systems. Yeah. And I think that that, that kind of embedded and thorough journalism 
I don't know what it, what it exposed to me was that the gate crashers and the gatekeepers are more alike than you might think. Did you find mm -hmm. that? Do you find that those two groups ha had more in common than you might have originally thought? Definitely. Yeah, I think they're they're in a lot of ways two sides of the same coin. Now, I should be careful and specify that I'm I'm not saying that you know your average Facebook engineer is morally interchangeable with your average you know Charlottesville marching alt right guy. I mean, I don't mean it that way. But I do think that some of the people that I spend time with, what they really like is moving fast and breaking things, <laughs> whether they're on the tech side or on the kind of alt-right or new-right or nihilist-right or whatever you want to call it. For a lot of the people, for I would say a majority of the people, it's not about conservative politics per se. It's not like they were like, well, I was reading a book by William Buckley and I really found it persuasive. And you know, it's, it's not that it's, it's, yeah. they're interested in the, the energy of it, the counterculture of it. A lot of them, you know, dropped their allegiance to Donald Trump as soon as he was in power essentially, because he wasn't a fun transgressive meme anymore. So it reads as politics, but it's not political in the, in the sense we generally think about it. It's really a media game and Silicon Valley too is in the media business, whether they think of themselves that way or not. They like to think of themselves as as voters and engineers, but everything is media now, and certainly everything digital is media now. And so they are the new media overlords. They are the new, you know, destroyers of media landscapes. When it comes to the gate crashers, their beliefs are bad in any number of ways. But when it comes to the Silicon Valley people, I think the flaws in their belief system are much more meaningful. You know, the reason that I include in the subtitle online extremists and techno-utopians is that I think the online extremists are just one thing. And as we've talked about at length here, that they wouldn't exist if not for the underlying systems perpetuating and incentivizing them. The, the techno-utopian part, I think, is the part that really can and should and most urgently needs to be changed because they have this, I think, really naive enlightenment style faith that everything will kind of just work out in the end and that, yeah, we can disrupt and destroy and innovate and crash through all the barriers we see in front of us because in the end, the arc of history will naturally bend toward justice. And I just, I don't think that's ever really been an article of faith that can be justified. And I think it just kind of got in their heads through some kind of cultural osmosis. And I think it needs to be eradicated. Not that you go from optimism to pessimism, but just that you don't rely on this naive faith that whatever you do and however bad you fuck things up, you, you'll just, you'll land on your feet, you know? Wait a second. But I, I don't know what you're talking about. Who are these uh, kind of tech lords who believe in enlightenment ideals that ultimately this will bend towards justice and that in fact we're, 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 we're heading, I've never heard any of them say stuff like that. Oh, they say it all the time. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg is constantly giving speeches about how we need lots of free speech because free speech will, will help us all as a society to connect. And you can read that as purely cynical and purely his you know desire for more power and more money. But I do think on some level, these people actually do believe that they are serving the larger goal of society being brought together more efficiently. No, I, I guess you're right. I just uh, I, I've tuned out his. Uh, I, I'm I'm here to connect you. He's such a robotic and, and and emotionally distant and strange person that 
it's almost like it doesn't even process when he starts talking about helping humans connect to humans. Just- yeah, but I think it matters because it, it it matters what the sales pitch is because I think the when they when they say it consistently for enough years, I think it's an indication that they really believe it. And in fact, I, I don't think that all that's happening with someone like that is a desire for more money. I think they already on some level know that they can never spend all the money they have. I think that they want to be revered and loved and treated as luminaries and, and treated as, you know, great men of history. Turning our attention back to the gate crashers. I'm sure you've noticed something. I mean, the reason why, uh, we've covered this so extensively is because we're focused on Canadian media and so many of these people are Canadian, whether you're talking about Faith Goldie or Gavin McInnes. Yeah, or Lauren Southern. It's very interesting. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts as to why, like, how did that happen? It's a very, I, I thought about that one a lot. I mean, you wonder how much of it is, you know, like, look at how many, you know, people on the first season of Saturday Night Live were Canadian. You know, some of it is just sort of like where where people find clusters and then they go with those clusters. There's nothing, it's not like there's something in the water or something, you know, they're the, they're the new, um, not ready for primetime players. <laughs> well, yeah, they are unfortunately ready for primetime. I wish they weren't, but um, yeah, it's so some of it, I think is just sort of these random network effects, you know, of people who know people and, but there are these weird clusters that show up of, you know, there are a lot of people, for example, who are queer people who end up in these alt-light and alt-right worlds. There's also a huge question of Jewish overrepresentation or Jewish underrepresentation. What do you know. think do you about that? I mean, I'm a Jewish person who is perplexed by Ezra Levant and Milo Yiannopoulos. And what are these Jewish people doing? I don't get it at all. Well, this is what I'm saying. I, I think there's a lot of you know, what are, what are so many women doing in this movement? What are, uh, look, uh, like people are just extremely fucking weird and they don't always, you know, subscribe to what you would think on paper would be their self-interest. And one of the guys I spent the most time looking into who, you know, really like has a podcast called the daily Shoah, which is like, you know, a very hilarious pun about the Holocaust, uh, you know, who is, you know, mm-hmm. about as far out on the Nazi spectrum as you can get, but is also, you know, weirdly kind of funny and not just sort of brainless about it, like is actually kind of savvy about it, which in a way makes it more scary. He, I think um, I think it's important to, to like take note of how much fun they're having and, and how and how much comedy is, is used as a tool and irony. Oh, I, I think that's an important part of it. I, I think so, too. And I, I struggled to get that stuff in my pieces. I actually had at one point, a whole debate with a fact checker about we could call one of these guys smart because people people in his former life who were sort of disowning him as, you know, you know, like essentially like mourning the loss of who he used to be, they would say, oh, well, he was always really smart. And the fact checker sort of said, well, we can't say this guy's smart. I mean, he's reached the stupidest conclusions of anyone in human <laughs> history. And I yeah. said, yeah, but that, but that, I don't know. It depends how you define intelligence. Cause there's a certain kind of intelligence where you're just monumentally wrong in where you end up, but you are very clever and kind of seductive in how you get there. And I, I, I think you're right. I think it's important to keep track of that. But, um, but that guy, he had a Jewish wife and a adopted brother who was biracial and he still ended up being the kind of leader of this arm of the movement. So 
that's not what I would have expected. And also, he grew up in this very sort of, you know, idyllic, progressive arts and literature kind of town. I feel like a lot of these people are from some of the most kind of anodyne Canadian uh, the the places where the where where you know the whole tradition of you know humanism gets boiled down to a bunch of polite norms that it's really fun to poke. Uh, mm-hmm. So I I, I kind of feel like a lot of it is sort of like uh, you know if you look at like kind of like a, an adolescent punk rock. Um, let, 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 let's let's get a let's get a reaction. You know, uh, that, that's absolutely uh, yeah. Well, and that was one of the ways that I could access to try to you know not excuse what some of these people were doing, but to try to just literally understand it. Uh, you know, from a sort of personal point of view, because a lot of people would ask me, like, how could you spend this much time around these folks? And it wasn't just sort of like sitting down for interviews every now and then. It was like really being around all the time because the style of reporting I wanted to do was very fly on the wall. And part of how I was able to access some kind of like empathy or understanding was through that kind of adolescent punk rock thing of, of like, I at least understand the desire to get a rise out of people. I think that another thing that unites the the gatecrashers and the gatekeepers is this idea of uh, creating your own reality through the through a screen that is really disconnected from what you would encounter, you know, if you actually went out and lived among people and talked to people, and uh, you can kind of get really really deep into just turning life into a video game and maximizing engagements and conversions if you're building an app and you can get really into just sort of uh, fucking with the media sphere and seeing if you can get a meme onto the daily news. And, you know, in order to do that, you've got to transgress some social boundaries and say some things that you would never say if you were on a public bus or in a bar, but you don't go to a bar and you're not on a bus because you're just constructing your own reality through a screen. And I bring all of that up because that's, all of us now, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of a sudden, we are all trying to create our realities. We, we don't really have any other way of creating meaning, but through media, you know, media, it's mediated by, by, by our screens now. And I'm wondering is if we should not be very, very uh, concerned about that. Right. Well, this is, I think that's a really good point. And this is exactly where I was sort of willing to be a little bit a little bit cautiously optimistic before about the moment that we're in, you know, the information systems in this current moment are not just an out and out dystopian shit show. I mean, there are, it is possible to log on to Facebook and find a link to the WHO or whatever. And it's not just completely flooded with charlatans and, and disinformation agents. On the other hand, we are all trying to struggle to make our worlds out of, the shards of digital existence and it might not be overtly obviously visible how wrong and destructive these information pathways are but i just don't think we've figured out how to build a functional public square out of the shards of digital existence we have and i think often it gets taken in this direction of kind of individual self-care you know make sure you take care of yourself make sure you don't get too much screen time Make sure, you know, you you don't get addicted to your phone. Like, that's all fine and that's all good. But I, again, I want to urge us to think systemically rather than individually. I I care about an an individual person's psychological well-being, but I care much more about the ability for all of us to figure out how to interact and how to have public group conversations that make some sense and that don't devolve into chaos and autocracy and xenophobia and... (laughs) you know, brigading and all that other stuff that we know and love from the internet. 
And this is, again, where I return to this idea of real systemic change. There, as you put it, these algorithms are built around emotional engagement, and it's much easier to engage immediate sharp spikes of emotional reaction when you're doing it through antisocial emotions, like fear and loathing and disgust and xenophobia, than it is around pro-social emotions. And that's really where the title of my book comes from. It's not, oh, these people are bad and they're antisocial. The class, the suite of emotions that these platforms draw out of us are broadly speaking antisocial emotions. If we are now living in that world more and more, like as much as we were living in it before, we're living in it way more full time now. Yeah, I worry. I, I don't think it's going to immediately destroy us and make us all sort of fall down clawing our eyes out overnight. But I think on, on the long term, I worry about the effect it has on us. I mean, it is interesting that it took a global epidemic uh, for us to realize that we have uh, video chat functions that we can use for no other reason than just to say hi to our friends and family. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really, I think it's always important not to lose sight of the fact that, you know, I, I think these technologies obviously have their upsides. I generally find it, you know, not that useful when people have this discussion about, oh, is tech, is technology good or is it bad? You know, is it, do tech companies have too much power or not enough power? I mean, like the answer to those things is always yes and no. It's always both. Uh, technology is just so many things. It's like when, when we say is technology good or bad, are we talking about like hubcaps or like heart surgery or like what 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 kind of technologies are we talking about it's it's wonderful in this moment that we have our phones that can you know help us talk to our grandmothers and our faraway loved ones or our loved ones down the street who we're not allowed to see it's wonderful that we have you know figured out how to get packages to people's doors when they need supplies delivered to them i mean all those things i don't take lightly and it's also nice that we have viral hashtags that are you know used for the good of society like you know black lives matter is a hashtag it's just that you know it's not a, a neutral level playing field it's not it's not sometimes there are good ones and sometimes there are bad ones it's it's the, these the systems are set up to encourage certain things and discourage other things yeah finally andrew you talk about systemic change we're going through something we've never ever seen the likes of before and it's not going to be over soon. And then you're going to elect, well, you, you've got an election and all of the same. We hope, we hope we have an election. What are the systemic changes that you would prescribe if you, if you had the power to do so? I mean, look, you sort of hit on it before. I think the number one thing that has to change is these platforms cannot be built around immediate short-term incitement of emotional engagement. I mean, I hesitate to use the viral metaphor right now, but it, it is the metaphor. The thing that makes something go viral, the thing that causes mass transmission of a meme, just like of a gene or a virus, the, the rule that triggers that is really important. And the rule right now is whoever causes the most emotion wins. And that, that cannot continue to be the rule. It's driving everyone crazy and it's tilting our information landscape in the wrong directions. If, if these companies can figure out a way to incentivize and put things in front of people's faces that make them more informed, engaged citizens, uh, yeah, that sounds really like quaint and old fashioned, but um, I just, I think it's their responsibility. I mean, they are sort of utilities of public information at this point. So, you know, they might want to just endlessly maximize shareholder value, or they might want to just find a simpler rule because it's it sounds sort of scary to them to be arbiters of truth or what's useful to people or but 
the fact is they're already playing God. They're already deciding which things survive and thrive and which things get buried. And you can build the system so that it maybe it maybe grows at a slightly different, slightly slower rate, and it maybe traps people there for seven hours a day instead of nine hours a day. But you know, you you, you got to change the 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 base of the pyramid. That's what I would do. I, I guess I'm having trouble. Uh, maybe it's a failure of my imagination. Like I know there are plans out there to say we got to break up these companies and they do so many different things. If there's an antitrust issue, there are proposals out there. Um, let's make sure that they're, you know, uh, if, if uh, they can't take money from foreign governments and interfere in the election, that's something you can, you can crack down on. Uh, there's a bunch of different things where regulation could play a role, but stop trying to sell so many newspapers was never a regulation that was going to be handed down to the newspaper industry. Uh, stop, stop having such evocative uh, and engaging, you know, images and headlines. It seems is not compatible with the idea of a free press. Uh, maybe the analogy works. Maybe it doesn't. Like, stop trying to engage people for so much time all day. Stop trying to, you know, give people the most compelling content possible. Is Are you, are you suggesting self-regulation? Because that hasn't worked so well uh, with these platforms. Or, or are you talking about an actual, uh, you know, government regime? Well, yeah, so people always sort of say that, you know, the solution is, you know, it has to be government regulation because anything else is sort of naive and, and soft-brained. And then, but then in the next breath, as you just did, they explain why government regulation isn't enough. So I, I, I agree that government regulation is helpful. I think a lot of these companies are monopolies. I think Amazon is the most obvious example, but I don't think it's enough. I don't think you can get where you want to go just by breaking them up. That still is not going to solve the algorithm problem. You make the analogy to newspapers. If these companies acted like newspapers, we'd be in a much better spot. They actively have spent their entire lives as companies denying that they have anything to do with newspapers because newspapers are a double bottom line business that recognizes that they have a responsibility not only to their fiduciary shareholders, but also to the public discourse. It's not going to solve everything overnight, and some of it is going to require massive consumer boycotts. And some of it is just going to require them out of self-interest to realize that if they don't do this stuff, people are going to start leaving in droves because they're going to be too depressed and experiencing too much social anxiety because they just feel shitty whenever they log on. I think what we were saying before about how the people who founded these companies want to be seen as luminaries and, you know, Renaissance men and whatever, I think we can appeal to that. I think we can appeal to that sort of um, ego and vanity to say, you know, Joseph Pulitzer ran a lot of really bad sensationalist newspapers, but then near the end of his life, he started doing other things so that he could burnish his legacy. Let's encourage them to do that. Let's say, okay, you spent the first 10 years of your adult life ruining this. Let's figure out how to spend the next 10 years trying to fix it. Your name will be on a lot more plaques. I think that actually would appeal to them. Move slower and fix things. Yeah, that sounds like sounds like it's time for that. <laughs> That is your Canada land. Support it. It has never been easier. It's $5 Canadian. Just click on the show note link or go to canadalandshow.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. We're on Twitter at Canadaland. We have pictures on Instagram. Our account there is canadalandshow. And our website is canadalandshow.com, where you can read a story by our editor, Jonathan Goldsby. He's been wanting to tell you the story for years. We take you back to a simpler time during the Rob Ford crack video scandal, when a major revelation, a huge shocking Rob Ford story, was completely fabricated. In fact, 
it was a fake news story that a news organization actually paid a fraudster thousands of dollars for. You'll want to read this story. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.